please don't anyone leave with shock as I tell you that the days of unleavened bread do not picture putting sin out of your lives. They simply do not picture putting sin out. They picture taking something in. They picture eating, imbibing, ingesting, digesting, assimilating, and making part of you something you are commanded to eat. I want to begin in the 12th chapter of the book of Exodus to refresh our memories once again, and I will refer to the new booklet on the subject of the Passover. Those of you who have not yet read it, I hope you will read it carefully, especially perusing the charts that are provided there for a correct understanding of the chronological events, and I would cite some of the other bibliography uh, that you could look into, such as Bullinger's Companion Bible and his excellent appendices on that subject. In the twelfth chapter of the book of Exodus, and we'll begin in the very beginning of this twelfth chapter, the Eternal spoke unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be the beginning of months. It was the month of Abib, meaning green ears. In the tenth day of that month they were to take a lamb. If the household too small, they could take according to the number of people. Every man according to his eating should make account for a lamb. Or it could be a kid of the goats, as we read later on in verse 5. They were to keep it till the fourteenth day and kill it in the evening. And that is explained thoroughly in the booklet. And there is ample internal evidence in the Bible to show that it was in the evening, meaning the late waning hours of the day, somewhere after noon and prior to sunset, not after sunset and before full dark as Lightfoot and a handful of scholars erroneously assumed. The preponderance of the evidence among Hebrew scholars, the Hebrew expression itself, and all of biblical history is that it was late in the even. They shall eat the flesh, verse 8, in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread. Of course, they were to take the blood and strike it on the doorposts and lintels of the houses, verse 7. And they were to eat it, verse 11, with their loins girded, their shoes on their feet, indoors, which was unusual, their staff in their hand, and they were to eat it in haste. It is the Eternal's Passover. I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Eternal. He said the blood would be a token. He would pass over them. Verse 13, the plague would not be upon them to destroy them when he smites the land of Egypt. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial. You shall keep it a feast to the Eternal throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Verse 15, seven days shall ye eat unleavened bread. Now, an explanation was offered to the parent organization a couple of years or so ago and confirmed by a letter from my father that placed their doctrine or their position in the following manner. This does not mean, they stated, that you need to eat unleavened bread every day of the seven. What it means is, bread eaters, if you are wont to eat bread, if you are habitually a person who enjoys bread, if and when you get ready to eat bread, the bread should be unleavened, not of the leavened kind. Now, I don't know where that explanation came from. I don't know what generated the question. Uh, in, however, ancient society, let me point out that bread was the mainstay of their diet that bread was the staff of life, that in the Hebrew and the Greek analogy, 
the word bread merely meant food. When you broke bread together, you sat down to a meal which could include a great deal. It could include lamb, vegetables, herbs. It could include uh, lentil soup or barley. It could include gruels of barley and lamb or what have you. But people broke bread together because the word bread is synonymous with the word food because bread was the mainstay and the staple of their diet. It is very obvious, both in the course of the Hebrew and that comment that I made in the, the plain English language before our eyes, that Almighty God is commanding those Israelites to ingest a portion of bread, and it must be unleavened bread, every day for seven days. I believe we are to eat unleavened bread every day for seven days, and I believe that's exactly what the Bible says. Even the first day you shall put away leaven out of your houses, for whoso, whoso eats unleavened, I'm sorry, eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. Now, we're familiar with all of the candlelight searches and the bizarre practices, not only of the Jews, but on down into the modern era, of the process of Mrs. Housewife putting leaven out of the home. And when is that to occur? It was to have occurred before sunset last night. So all of the putting out, all of the searching to find the crumbs that were referred to in the sermonette is basically to have taken place. In ancient Jewish homes, it took place by candlelight. In modern homes, it takes place with vacuum cleaners and, and you know, carpet sweepers and brooms and on and on. They actually went to the expense in Ambassador College years ago that they had signs and tape, and they would go through dormitories where kids would be want to taking, uh, you know, cookies or uh, pie or whatever, back from the student center to their dorms and sit around and eat. So someone came up with the idea, well, wait a minute, we, we should not only clean out the larder or the kitchen or the pantry, but maybe we had also better check the dormitory. So they would go through with a grounds cleaning and a, and a dormitory cleanup crew, and they would actually vacuum the dorms, and then they would post it that this is an unleavened area. I don't know that they said don't, you know, but no one is going to take any leaven in, but they actually would, would label it as an area that is now swept free from leavening. So we're familiar with all the foibles and the practices about, in ancient times, uh, candlelight searches and in modern times pouring beer down the drain once you'd bought it because it had effervescence and therefore was supposed to be leavened. And beer is not leavened. This is not, these are not the days of unleavened beer or unleavened pop, uh, but the days of unleavened bread. Now he goes on to say in verse 17, You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for in this selfsame day have I brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore shall you observe this day in your generations by an ordinance forever. A few analogies that are very obvious. Over in 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, we read that all of these things that happened to them, I won't turn to it and read it, including the Exodus, happened to them as an example to us upon whom the ends of the earth are come. Now, the analogies are very clear. Satan is typified by Pharaoh. Egypt is a type of sin. Israel in the promised land, I shouldn't say the promised land, I hadn't gotten there yet, but Israel in Egypt is a type of you and me under the clutches of Satan the devil in sin. The blood on the doorposts and the lintels is a symbol of the shed blood of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who is the Passover. The Passover lamb is no longer to be roasted and eaten. 
And people desire to roast a lamb and have roast lamb just for the fun of it or because they like lamb. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. It might be a great way, but it has no significance whatsoever. Please don't ever think it has any significance any more than having uh, Cajun fried redfish. It really does not have any spiritual significance, not today. Jesus Christ is the Passover. He has become the Passover. It says, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Moses was symbolic as a type of Christ to release the Israelites. In other shadowy types, Moses and Aaron are types of the two witnesses, and Janus and Jambres are types of the beast and the false prophet which is yet to occur in the future when, once again, great, great witnesses of God are going to say, let my people go. Now, remember that the back of Egypt was broken in a very important way to release the hold that Egypt had on the Israelites. And I want to point out in passing that what occurred back then in the ancient Passover and the Exodus was not merely a religious exercise. We are not reading of a religious ceremony. We are reading of an event which, had there been newspapers, would have commanded headlines for probably months. We are reading of a geopolitical event, of an economic event, of an event having to do with inexplicable so-called natural disasters and catastrophes such as had never stricken any nation from the time nations had been constituted. We are dealing with the great dislocation of literally millions of human beings as refugees from a nation where they had been slaves. We are dealing with a massive policy of intended and implied genocide by an Hitlerian dictator named Pharaoh who had set out to absolutely exterminate the, the Israelites and prior to that time had issued a decree that the Hebrew babies were to be killed and were to be dashed against the stones as they were born because the Hebrews were beginning to outpopulate and outproduce the Egyptians. So it is not merely a religious ceremony we're reading of here in history. We're reading of the fact that prior to this time, a great nation that had known ascendancy over those other nations for generations, which had built some of the greatest monuments the world has ever known, had some of the greatest structures which still stand, like the Great Pyramid at Giza and all the other pyramids in Egypt, the great tombs of Hatshepsut and the great monuments at Karnak and Memphis and Thebes, the great roadways, the tremendous shipbuilding, their felucas and the other vessels that plied the Red Sea and the Mediterranean, the commerce of a great nation with its granaries and its verdant fields along the Nile River, a nation that had excelled in literature, in art, in sculpture, in music, in science of that day, and whose monuments and paintings and sculptures can be seen in the British Museum and the Louvre and the Berlin Museum and especially down in the Cairo Museum to this day. Any person who goes to Egypt and goes into the Great Pyramid and is taken through all of those chambers into the Queen's Chamber and the King's Chamber and were to even take out a razor blade or a plastic credit card and try to insert it between those highly polished stones, many of them the size of uh, half of this stage and maybe six feet through, and to ponder and to wonder how did they get wedged so perfectly in place? How is the tolerance between these stones almost as if they're, they're one stone, that it isn't one stone set atop another. How do they get fit so perfectly that you can't slide a razor blade 
after these thousands of years between the joints, how they fit together. This was a great nation, and its back was broken economically and politically as if by a military action. Its king and its armies drowned and destroyed all in one fell swoop in a matter of days as a new nation is being born and coming out of Egypt. I'll remind you of Emanuel Velikovsky's book called Ages in Chaos, in which there is the papyrus that has a step-by-step relating of the events that almost is a parallel of the book of Exodus and the later on the orations in Deuteronomy that talks about there was not a home where a man's brother was not dead, that is actually an old papyrus that was discovered in recent times and was translated by this historian of Russian birth, who has really set straight a great deal of missing archaeological and historical information uh, from that period of time. It's a fascinating document, and it shows who was the Queen of Sheba, who visited Solomon, who was Hatshepsut of of, uh, Egypt, and some of the monuments that were carved out of stone and removed from the overflowing of the waters at the Aswan High Dam that have been moved to other areas are still there so that we can go see them today, or they would have been drowned and covered up. That's a fascinating book and not a part of my subject here today, but I thought I would mention that. It's important to understand that we're not reading here of a handful of Hebrews cowering in little ramshackle shanties by candlelight reciting strange things, and then a handful of people tippy-toeing through a muddy slough about ankle-deep and then, uh, you know, aggrandizing it and claiming it was a great exodus that went through great walls of water on one side and the other. It's documented in history. It really happened. It really took place. And these analogies are important for us to understand with regard to our Christian life. We know that the Lamb, under the Old Covenant, was symbolic of Christ, and that the slaying of the Lamb and the painting of the blood over the doors and the lintels of the homes was the symbolism of those people accepting the blood of Christ. The candlelight search for putting leavening out of the home, the symbol of them realizing sin was in their lives, looking deeply to find it, knowing what it was, having it clearly identified, and then expelling it from their homes even as they ask God to forgive it and drive it out of their hearts, their minds, and their lives. Now, I would submit to you that all of the putting out that the Israelites did was prior to sunset on the 15th of Abib. And from that time on, you as a housewife are not engaged in putting out any further, are you? You're engaged in taking in something for seven days, eating unleavened bread. Turn to John, the sixth chapter. There's a great deal on this in the New Testament. But frankly, I do not remember a sermon in all of my 25 and more years in the Radio Church of God, which later became the Worldwide Church of God, in which the emphasis was placed on what we took in. It was always monotonously repeated that this picture is the putting of sin out of our lives. I can just hear that just over and over again, year after year after year. But let me tell you what I think is wrong with that concept. Nothing deliberately wrong with it at all. And in one sense of the word, that is an analogy one might draw because it's part of the Days of Unleavened Bread, albeit, I think, a previous part that has to do with what takes place prior to the 15th. But it subtly makes it appear that we are empowered to put something out. It it kind of puts the responsibility on us. It, It sort of says that 
we are encouraged to have the attitude of shunning something or eschewing something or ejecting something or forcibly putting something away from us or or turning away for something or rooting something out. And very subtly, without intending to have this, it begins to mean that we are the person on our own strength who are wrestling with these problems. We are fighting these problems. We are fighting this sin. And we are putting it out. We are wresting it away from us. And we are rejecting it and shunning it and eschewing it. And I wonder if there is not an attitude that begins to get lodged subtly in the back of our minds that we are doing these things on our own strength. And I say it is subtle and certainly not deliberate. I would never accuse anyone of that. I think it's merely a slight lack of a breadth of understanding that I believe God is giving his church in these days, which the parent organization, with its shackles, is not able to openly and lovingly admit and accept and to go on joyously growing in new truth and new knowledge and new understanding. They are going to be stuck right where they are, basically because of a doctrinal treatise, which is in a book, which my father said was the most important book that had been written since the Bible, in which I think the leadership of the worldwide church will have a very difficult time gainsaying, which is sad in a way, because it took the Seventh-day Adventist church far more than 100 years. Well, I shouldn't say that. That's a little bit too much of a length of time. But, yeah, it was, too. It's probably uh, more than 100 years, probably about 130 or 40 years to try to begin to take issue with the teachings of their prophetess, Mrs. E.G. White. And only today is some of the leadership of the Seventh-day Adventist Church beginning to be a little cherry, a little suspicious about alleged plagiarism and some of the writings of Mrs. E.G. White. So once a person becomes almost supplanted in place of God or in place of the Bible or in place of Christ to a church organization, it is very difficult for them to change what that individual may have written and left behind as doctrinal dogma that is locked in place. We have no such shackles. The Word of God is to teach us. We're to admit it where we have been in error. And I used to teach that, and I was in error. I did not see a breadth and a scope of understanding of the meaning of the Days of Unleavened Bread that I've come to see in the last very few years. I came to see this last year. I've come to see a new breadth and a new scope to it this year that I didn't quite see last year. And last year I saw enormously more than I had the previous eight or ten years before that. And I think that that is important, that when we are wrong, we have to admit it and go on and begin to grow. In the sixth chapter of the book of John, beginning in verse 44, Christ said, No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. As it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God, every man therefore that is heard and is learned of the Father comes unto me. Not that any man has seen the Father, save he that is of God, meaning Christ, he has seen the Father. Verily I say unto you, he that believes on me has everlasting life. I am. Notice those words. He, appe- he appeared to Moses and said, when you go to your compatriots, you tell them, I am has sent you. And Moses said, Who are you, Lord? He said, I am that I am. Now, that meant I am the life self-inherent, the self-perpetuating, self-existent one. I am. We are not. We are as transitory and as temporary as the grass of that field out there. 
We are here today, and I'm going to tell us in a moment our quart capacity. Some of us about one quart low, including me. You know, we, we just a vernacular. But we are like these flowers. Uh, we're born. We come to our our youth, and we flower as young girls do at 15, 16, 17. Uh, a lot of these girls might think that some of you ladies sitting around here with white hair that are elderly and a little stooped with age, uh, they would be shocked if they saw the picture you've got on your dresser of what you looked like when you were 16. A lot of kids think the old folks have always been old, that we weren't young like them. We didn't blossom. and We didn't look good for a while when we were in high school. We've always been 84 out there like little old lady I saw on the way up here today with a shawl on, bent over with a rake in her flower garden. She must have been all of 88 and she was out this little white ramshackle house tending a flower garden, enjoying this beautiful day. And, you know, probably her husband died years ago, I would imagine, like many widow ladies in our country, uh, outlived their husbands by a good 10, 12, 15 years. And uh, you'd be amazed. You could go in there and probably find out that uh, she was a homecoming queen in 1907. You'd be dumbfounded. But we are temporary. We are literally here today and gone tomorrow. And I had to perform a funeral yesterday for a member of our congregation, Chester Ingram, and had to see his body lying there. And there was the hand that I had shaken the previous week in Sabbath, or two weeks ago because I was gone to Nashville. But, uh, and he was telling people in the congregation, feel that. He said, my biceps are coming back. I'm working again. Well, he'd had quite a problem. The government had come in and clamped down uh, foreclosure on a whole lot of huge heavy equipment. And it was sitting there rusting. And the man was uh, trying to bail out, and he could have if they'd let him use the equipment. He's got a lovely home over near Longview up on a hill that overlooks the interstate and a lot large family, a lot of grandchildren and nieces and nephews and so on. I think something like two sons and two daughters, and they were all there. And uh, I had to go through these scriptures in Job 14 and 1 Corinthians 15 about the temporality, the impermanence of our lives and what happens when we die and the utter oblivion of the dead. I didn't take issue with the immortality of the soul. I just read the truth of God from the Bible. And the family thought that it was very comforting and very helpful and told me that they did appreciate what I had to say at that service yesterday. But again, it drives home the absolute impermanence. Here this man looked good, seemed to be in good shape. He was getting stronger. Bang! Five-something in the evening on his job, just uttered a little cry, slumped to the floor, and he's dead. 30 seconds, 15 seconds later, his heart has stopped, and he's dead. Massive heart attack, and today he's in a concrete line vault underneath the lid that is locked down in a casket over there at a cemetery that I could show you, as lifeless as he can be. And he is utterly unaware of the fact that he missed the Passover that he was planning so much to attend. Or this first day of unleavened bread, right here today in Mineola, that he was planning to attend. He knew about the time and the place. He was surely planning to be here with you today, but he's not here. And you know, in the batting of an eye, as I told them yesterday, quicker than I can clap my hands together, just as I explained about my operation on my elbow when they put me under total anesthesia, and the lady said, are you ready? And I was expecting her to say, now start counting to one from 100, because Ron Dart and other people had told me that that's the way they do it. So I'm waiting to say 100, 99, 98. She said, are you ready? I said, yes, I'm ready. And then she said, well, are you ready to go back to your room? And I said, well, I looked around, and there was a bloody bandage on my elbow. And I thought, that can't be. She hasn't let me count from 100 yet. 
and it might have been about five hours, and it's all over. That was the easiest thing I've ever experienced. Listen, death is easy. Death is easy. It's not hard. It's not difficult. It's frightening. We want to push it away. But let me tell you, it is easy. Be completely oblivious. I've never slept that good in my life. I sleep with groans and moans, roll over and, oh, you know, my back, my elbow hurt, one thing, the other. I don't sleep all the way. I don't like people to have to sleep near me because I keep them awake all night. I want to talk about why I hurt at night. And I say, oh, that's bad. Now, Bill Cosby, you know, he doesn't. He says that he lies there in sleep and says, oh, that's good, and talks about how good it is to sleep. Well, I've never slept that way to where I'm saying it's real good. But death is a deep sleep, and in an instant, it says in the Bible, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, as quickly as you can bat an eyelash, you're awake again and in the kingdom of God. So, you know, Chester Ingram is going to make it face-to-face with Jesus Christ a whole lot quicker than he would have made it here to Mineola. A whole lot quicker. Because the instant his heart stopped, he went into oblivion, and in the next split second of his consciousness, he's going to be in the kingdom of God. And I was able to comfort them, I think, with that concept yesterday. Jesus says, I am that bread of life. God has life self-inherent within himself, eternal life. He lives in perpetuity. He can never die. Now, I want to give you a little bit of a concept. First, just a couple of scriptures. These were very hard scriptures, it says in verse 60. This is a hard saying, and who can hear it? The disciples were upset. Verse 51 says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. So here again, we have an analogy. When did the living bread come down from heaven? It came down from heaven when they went through the Red Sea into the land of Sinai. They began to ingest and eat manna. And manna is a type of Jesus Christ, as unleavened bread is our manna. It is a type of Jesus Christ, and we must ingest it and take it in until it becomes a part of us. If any man eat of this bread, it's an analogy, it's a metaphor. In a spiritual sense, Christ, through the power of God's Holy Spirit, through the love that Mr. Reisner told you about in his sermonette, must flow into you through a contact with God that you establish in the same way that I would establish a contact of electricity by going to a wall socket and plugging in a reading lamp. And the electricity goes back to whence it came. It is circuitous. It flows from one wire and just continually flows back, positive to negative, and so on. And it has to have a connection of two prongs on the plug, and sometimes it's safe to have a third, which is a ground to make sure that a short can't occur and cause a fire or something like that. And so the light that lights up the bulb is analogous to our spiritual life that lights up and shines in the darkness all around us when the Holy Spirit is flowing in us and not stopping there to be bottled up. But as Jesus said, anyone that will come unto me out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Now, what is a living water? Rivers of living waters. Well, it's a sack of groceries left on the back store, back uh, stoop or or porch of a poor person. It's a card or a letter sent to a lonely person. It's a telephone call to someone that needs some encouragement. It's a, you know, the loan of a used car. It's, it's a lift to church. It's a place to stay at the feast. It's a, a contribution to the love fund for the poor. It's, it's helping your brother. It's loving, giving, helping, serving, sharing. 
That is outflowing and outpouring in good deeds and good works toward our brother. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give, verse 51 of John 6, is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now, the Jews strove, and they probably argued, and they said, this is cannibalism, and they began to get all excited, which Jews always seem to do. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood. Very hard saying. It's an analogy. It is a metaphorical saying. You have no life in you. Now, he repeats it several times. Verse 57, he says, As the living Father has sent me, I live by the Father. So he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. That was physical bread. For he that eats of this bread shall live forever. Then Peter, of course, said, Lord, to whom shall we go? When many of the disciples left, and he said in verse 65 to 69, that many of his own disciples left him, and Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I want to tell you a little bit about how that takes place. When we eat lunch today, there's going to be an ample supply of unleavened bread. And as you eat that unleavened bread, I hope that you chew it very well. Because mastication, or chewing the food, mixes it with saliva, which chemically begins the digestive process, changing starches to sugar and so on, in the mouth. It then follows through the esophagus, or the trachea, and down into the stomach, where mastase is mixed with the food, and a certain kneading, mashing, and kind of a mixing together occurs. You really don't digest a lot in the stomach, although some other fluids are put in with the food. It is not assimilated into your body from the stomach. It's got to go on from there into the small intestine. And when it gets into the small intestine, there are myriads of little capillaries that are all through our body. If you ever wake up with a red eye from staying up too late or having one too many, or maybe getting a bug in your eye, if you want to tell them that's what happened, uh, you can look in the mirror and your eye is kind of pink or red. And if you look real close, you can see the tiniest little blood vessels that you're utterly unaware of when your eye looks white most of the time. But they're in there, aren't they? Well, those little tiny blood vessels are throughout your entire body so that the tiniest nick, even from the edge of paper, which smarts, a paper burn, a paper cut, is very, very painful for some reason. Or the tiniest little scratch on the lobe of your ear can bring a bright little bead of blood. But the tinier the scratch, the quicker it heals. I want to tell you about that. Blood is what Jesus shed. And the Bible says, the life is in the blood thereof. And it commands us not to eat blood. Blood is not edible. We are to drain the blood out of animals when we kill them, and we are not to eat the blood. Blood is a remarkable fluid of various chemical constituencies and parts. It is the life stream of the human body. No part of your body, from the tip of your nose to the tip of your toes, can live without it. Every cell of your body, from the mustaches on your upper lip, to the hair on your arms, to the calluses on your heels, must be nourished by blood. Now, the average one of us, about 160 pounds, males, have about one gallon and a fourth of blood in our body. And of that blood, there are four main parts. The first, one you're familiar with from wartime scenes of the bottle hanging above the wounded, is called plasma. 
And plasma is merely a word really that means fluid in Greek. The rest of it consists of red blood cells with technical names, white blood cells. It's very critical if we are learned uh, to be, we're determined to be losing albumin because there's a problem there. and has what It has something very important to do with the body, to do with edema and swelling, and to do with the loss of blood cells and the loss of health. Albumin, globulin, and fibrinogen. Now, fibrinogen is an important protein that helps in the clotting process, and without it, we could not survive. Albumin keeps the plasma within the blood vessels, and if an amount of albumin, if the amount in our blood vessels drops for some reason, plasma will then begin to escape into the tissues, and that is called edema or swelling. And so when feet and legs begin to swell, or the stomach begins to swell, or the tissue begins to swell, sometimes when we're infirm or sick, something has happened to the bone marrow, something has happened through a cancerous disease, something has happened through perhaps pneumonia or something else, edema sets in, or swelling. Globulin consists of antibodies, and I have antibodies in my blood now by the score and by the hundreds that were put in there even artificially. When people came up to me with a big gleaming needle in the Philippines and stuck my forearm and made a great big place swell up, when they immunized me against cholera, or when I was younger, when they came up and poked a bunch of needles in a spot on my arm and a great big scab developed and later on fell off and left with a great big funny-looking disc-like sore there, or a hollow indentation like a crater on the moon, in my blood are all these antibodies, which if I were now to contract the germ that these antibodies would recognize, called smallpox, they would gang up on that smallpox germ and fight it. So all of these hundreds of antibodies in our bloodstream, in the globulin, which is a part of the, of the protein that is in the plasma, would recognize it, they would attack it and begin to fight it. Now, red blood cells are tiny rounded discs with little hollow-like or indented centers. And they take oxygen to our tissue, to every part of our body. And they remove carbon dioxide. The lungs help us to do that. They're manufactured in the marrow of your bone. And every cubic centimeter of man's blood, there are 5,400,000 red blood cells. Men have more red blood cells than women, by the way. In a cubic centimeter of women's red blood, there are only 4,800,000. In a man's, there are 5,400,000. Red blood cells are, bone, are, are born in the bone marrow as a very large, round-shaped-looking cell. It matures, flattens out, assumes the disc-like shape, and begins to enter the bloodstream. How rapidly does this happen? I'll tell you. Your body, even as you are sitting here, with the function of the marrow of your bones is manufacturing almost 2 million red blood cells per second. What a marvelous body you have. Is that fabulous or not? The marrow of your bone, even as you sit here, is manufacturing 2 million red blood cells every second. Now, there are 2 million red blood cells that are dying every second. They have matured. They have lived their life of just a few months. That's all they live and they are now to be carried away as waste. To build red blood cells, you've got to have a full, rich, balanced diet, and you've got to have a lot of iron. So that means you've got to eat things like spinach and beet tops and greens and things that have iron, and to find out what is it in your diet that will give you iron. White blood cells help defend our bodies. They attack foreign materials, germs, and so on, and they're divided into three parts, too. 
and I won't mention all the technical terms. All right, by an analogy, your heart is a pump, and your great arteries that are joined to all of the, the capillaries that meet at the capillaries, it would be like drawing a, a little diagram of great arteries that go to smaller arteries that go to yet smaller arteries that go to the capillaries that then meet other capillaries and back to the veins. But let me give you an analogy so that even the children here can understand it. When the red blood cell comes by the small intestine to pick up some oxygen or by the lungs to pick up oxygen and to take it to the rest of the body, it's just like imagine New York City. New York City, and I'm thinking now of Manhattan, not of Jamaica, the Bronx and so on, but of Manhattan. It's an island. There are many, many bridges, the Brooklyn Bridge and all the other bridges, and the Holland Tunnel and so on. Well, outside of where these millions of people live, these millions of people would be like your blood cells, I'm sorry, like all of the cells of your body, like your tissue and so on, all these millions of people living in Manhattan. Every single day, there is an absolute army of trucks of every size, type, and description that flow across those bridges on big four-lane highways or through the Holland Tunnel. But eventually, as they get into downtown Manhattan, which is analogous to the smaller arteries, they get into narrow, one-way alleyways behind the hotels, where there's only one-way traffic, where there can only be one truck at a time. Well, that's exactly what happens with your red blood cells that are carrying food to your body. Finally, in the capillary system, the capillary is so tiny, there is only room for one red blood cell at a time, and they've got to line up and go single file through your capillaries. And when they get to the capillaries, the capillary wall is very thin and porous, almost just like it is lattice work, very weak. And because of the pressure of tissues from all around, these little red blood cells are induced to dump their load. Like the dump truck, or the great big produce truck, or the oil truck, or the bread truck, or the beer truck. Behind the hotel, parks at the hotel, and they offload the food and the produce to go to the hungry people in the hotel or the downtown office building or the restaurants. Now, they're still going one way, so by analogy, we'll say the same truck is then loaded up with the garbage cans. And as this red blood cell pushes out its load, the tissues are squeezing against it with the refuse, the poisons, the unused and unneeded portions of various elements and minerals and so on, trash, refuse from the body, and the little platelet or the little blood cell is loaded up with that, and it's squeezed out into the other end of the capillary system and begins to flow, not in a pulse, but in a regular flow, in the vein, back through the heart. And then, of course, it's got to make a circuitous route through the liver, through the kidneys, or through the lungs, where all the acids and the poisons and the refuse and so on are thrown off. Now, in a very real way, this steady stream of products flowing into downtown Manhattan is exactly like your bloodstream feeding your body. It has been said that we are what we eat, and we are. Or, another way of putting it, we eat what we are. Because we are dirt, we are flesh, we come from the ground, and we are eating things which come from the ground. Now, this is merely a metaphor or an analogy, but I want to show you how, in a very real sense, when you eat a physical food... It is ingested, digested, assimilated, and becomes a part of you. In the same way, when you eat in, when you drink in through your mind and your heart, in a sermon, in Bible study, in personal prayer, in fellowship and association with your brother, in doing good deeds and in thinking good thoughts, in serving and helping and sharing and working in the work of God, 
you are drinking in and imbibing of a spiritual diet. The only time of the year when Almighty God specifically tells you to eat something, to ingest something, a specific something, the days of unleavened bread. He tells you to eat whatsoever you want during the Feast of Tabernacles. He tells you on the Day of Atonement, don't eat anything, to fast, and don't eat at all. But during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, he points out flat, humble pie, as I've called it by analogy in the past, unleavened bread. And he says, eat that. So in a very real sense, the only time in your life that you have an opportunity to act out, putting out your hand and biting down on and chewing unleavened bread and thinking it is as if I am imbibing my Savior, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who died for me, is during the days of unleavened bread. The only way that you can get sin out is to fill up the void that is left by taking Christ in. You've heard of the arguments about whether a glass is half full or half empty, when actually it is both. But the only way to get the air out of an empty glass is to pour liquid in. So when the Israelites were taken out of Egypt, they had left sin behind. Now they came to the bank of the Red Sea, and here came Pharaoh's army, and Moses made his famous statement, Stand ye still, and see the salvation of God. Now it was God's time to do something. You know, when I think of a church which has made little ones in Christ feel, for all of these decades, that they are the ones who have got to do something, and have not emphasized enough of how much Christ does for us, at how much you can lean in his arms and expect him to do his part, it makes me feel very, very sad and somewhat ashamed in those past years of the hard and oftentimes authoritative sermons that did not allow people to have the ebullience and the love and the excitement, the joy and the feeling of release, the feeling of escape from sin, of shedding and getting rid of a burden, not putting a burden on you, and pointing out all the things during the Days of Unleavened Bread, this is when we must put sin out of our lives. This is when we must drink in of Jesus Christ and imbibe and ingest Jesus Christ of Nazareth during these Days of Unleavened Bread. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, and begin in verse 7. I'll show you something important here. 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7. I think this is a concept that we need to get very clearly in our minds and hearts. He said, therefore, the old leaven, that's done before the 15th, that you may be a new lump even as you are unleavened. A very powerful statement to the Corinthian church that shows absolute documentary proof here that Paul wrote this and it was read to that church during the days of unleavened bread. Otherwise, this is a direct contradiction. He could hardly tell them, purge out the leaven even as you are unleavened. If they're unleavened, why is he saying purge out the leaven? Because he's saying purge out the spiritual leaven even as you are physically unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Now notice some important words that have needed emphasis for years. Not with old leaven. You don't need to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread with your mind and your heart on old leaven. It's already out. It's gotten rid of. Now you're going on and there are new horizons before you. And it is wrong to look back and to sift through the sins of the past. 
it is right to look forward and to expect Jesus Christ to alleviate and to forgive those sins and to go on. Neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, you know, Almighty God says through the Apostle Paul, and I want to turn back now to the book of Romans and looking at chapter 6, that we are not to be slaves and servants to sin. He says that we're to be freed from all of that. In chapter 6, verse 1 of the book of Romans, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Some of them had that argument. And he said, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? When the Israelites looked back, once the waters of the Red Sea had come together again in a turgid, violent action of the movement of those waters, what was beneath? Well, the bodies of an army. The bodies of Pharaoh and his host. And what was behind on the other side? Egypt and slavery. The hovels symbolically to walk in newness of life. And ahead of us stretched the days of unleavened bread. The journey in the wilderness. The journey of trials and troubles and tribulations, sure, and overcoming and so on. But we have someone walking alongside us to help us with that. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should live in a new way of life. If we have been planted together, and this is speaking of baptism, in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. He that is dead is freed from sin. Double meaning there. Think of our brother Chester. He's freed from sin. Sin has no hold over him. There's no way Satan the devil can touch that man. His body is inert, lifeless. The brain is not functioning. The heart is not pumping. The bloodstream is not flowing. He is at peace. He is totally peaceful. No one is more in a deep, peaceful sleep than Chester Ingram or my father and mother and brother nor some of your loved ones and grandparents and others you have known and loved who have died. Sin has no grip on them. Now, while Chester was alive... Sin could get at him. Satan the devil could still attack him. Something could tempt him. An attitude could flow into his mind. Not now. Sin has no hold over him anymore. Well, by analogy, when we come out of the baptismal pool, God's Word is trying to tell us it's as good as though we are dead and buried and are at peace. And sin cannot grab us and rule us and take us captive any further. He that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dies no more. Death has no more dominion over him. Now, even though temporarily our loved ones who are dead are dead and in the hold of what we can call death, death has no dominion over them. It cannot prevail over them. The hold of death has already been broken. It merely is a matter of a countdown. It's only a question as to when, not whether. It's only a question as to time. And at that moment in time, they're going to come out of that grave and be resurrected. I want to go a little bit further on and read, beginning in verse 12. Let not sin, therefore, rule or reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it 
in the lusts thereof. Now, I've had occasion to see many, many times in my life, I've seen it in myself, I've seen it in the family, I've seen it among my constituents and cohorts and people who work with me and my colleagues, I've seen it in human nature. But oftentimes we can have a set of problems. I've got a set of problems right now I'm dealing with. It might be personnel problems, it might be doctrinal problems, financial problems, physical and health problems with an elbow that's hurting me, and on and on and on. You can have things that are upsetting. You can get a letter that bothers you and upsets your mind. You can get a phone call that's disturbing. You can see a look on someone's face. A friend that you know and love hurts you in some way. Those all kind of pile up, and they become a boil. Now, here comes some third person, and they don't know you've got a boil. Your boil is the result of all kinds of problems that finally causes an eruption, as it's called, on the skin, and you're wearing a great big boil, except this boils in your mind and heart. You're upset. You're short-tempered. You are irked. You are irritated. Now, somebody comes along and says, How you doing, Ted? And slaps you on the arm right on top of the boil. Except that isn't what happens. Somebody comes along and irritates you. And they didn't know that you've been building to this tremendous head of steam. They didn't know you got the boil. They didn't really mean to do this. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, like a violent storm, comes this huge overreaction. There is a flea crawling across, across your carpet, and you run and get a 155-millimeter howitzer and point it at the flea, and boom, you blow away the flea. How often have we seen that in human relationships? Overkill beyond all that is required when people just absolutely keep things bottled up inside of them. They let it grow and fester and become diseased. And then finally, at some point in time, somebody slaps the boil. And boom, and it's been in there for years. And they just blow. That's not the way to do it. The way to do it is never get the boil in the first place. And every single time a little problem comes along, look at Matthew 18, go directly to your brother and solve it. Tell him about it or her. Sit down and talk about it. Share it. For pity's sake, don't just share the good times. Share the bad times. Lean on one another once in a while for help. You know, I can't understand the attitude of a church that tells people when you've got problems, go out or wait an X number of months or you're suspended or don't come back to church until you get rid of your problems any more than I can understand a hospital at the emergency entry where a man comes with a, with a, a fracture of his arm, a compound fracture and a bone sticking out. He says, wait a minute, go get the bone fixed and then don't bother us because we're a hospital. And when you get your bone fixed and so on, come on back in. The hospital's there to help set the bone, isn't it? What's the church there for? To help people with smoking problems and help people with mental problems and sex problems and financial problems and marital problems and husband-wife and father-child problems, spiritual problems and questions and doubts? What's the church for if it isn't to nourish and to help? Aren't we the emergency ward for the spiritually afflicted? And aren't we supposed to say, as Christ did, come... My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Or are we supposed to say, don't come till you're perfect, little yellow pencils, because I, the minister, am retired, and I don't want you causing me any problems. And I've seen that in action in a church I know about. And it's wrong. It's just wrong. That's all there is to it. Here in this very rich chapter, it goes on to say in verse 14, For sin shall not have dominion over you. You are not under the law, but under grace. Now, I've heard all the arguments because, you see, we were so alert 
to people wanting to do away with the Ten Commandments. So we came down so heavy on the negative side of that scripture that people did not get to enjoy the positive side. Sure, the negative side is that this is not saying that we're out from under the Ten Commandments and we know that and understand it and rejoice in it, that we obey the law as Christ magnified it in the Sermon on the Mount. But the positive part is that we are not under the law, meaning under the penalty of it. We're not under the threat of it. We're not under the fear of it. We're under the awe, under the duty to respect it, to love it, to be thankful for the law. But we're under the umbrella of grace. Grace, forgiveness, is flowing over and about and around us like rivers of living water. It says here in verse 17, God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to you. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. He goes on to say in verse 20, When you were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye now are ashamed? What was the fruit, the reward, the evidence, the payoff in our past lives? Things that now make us ashamed. The end of those things, carnal pursuits, is death. But now being made free from sin and become the servants of God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end, the end result, the payoff, everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. During the days of unleavened bread, Think every time you eat of that bread that you are imbibing and ingesting food. And then as I told you about your bloodstream, of the way that your bloodstream will make that bread a part of you. Literally going to become a part of your tissue. And in the same way, I hope the sermonette and this sermon and your Bible study, perhaps reading some of the Bible before you go to bed tonight, and your prayer will make Christ a part of you.